Hello, I'm George Alagaya and this is Migrants Mean Business. Migrants Mean Business is a new podcast series from the Migration Museum in association with Alliance Global Investors, featuring conversations with some of Britain's most successful business leaders, all of whom have immigrant backgrounds. Each episode explores their personal and professional stories, offering insights into how they built their businesses, the challenges they faced, and how being migrants has influenced their lives and careers. These conversations highlight how immigrants have helped to build modern Britain, a story which now, more than ever before, needs to be told. So, without further ado, let's dive in. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Migration Museum and the third in the series of Migrants Mean Business. It gives me great pleasure to do the introduction and uh, get the conversation going this evening with Karen Black at OBE. Now, for those of you who Googled Karen before you came and looked at her Wikipedia page, it is eye-wateringly impressive. I'm just going to read one paragraph, which actually needs updating, which I will do. In 2003 and 2005, Karen was voted by Management Today as one of the 35 most powerful women under 35 in the UK. That was quite a long time ago. Blackett has featured in the UK's 100 most influential black women five times and was re has received an OBE in the 2014 Birthday Honours for Services to Media and Communications. Karen was also became the first businesswoman to top the Black Power List in 2015. She was on Radio 4 in 2015, Women's Hour Power List of the Top 10 Influencers. And since then, because this is obviously out of date, on Friday, Karen received an award for Most Influential uh, Woman in Britain amongst 10 influential people in the UK and is very active with Downing Street on the Race Equalities uh, Commission for Business, uh, which she's going to be talking about this evening. And also, most recently, has become chair of the... One of the trustees. One of the trustees yeah. uh, of the Royal Foundation for, for the Sussexes. So we're, hopefully we're going to be able to touch upon that as well. So let's go back, because here we are at the Migration Museum. Your family background, mm. where your parents came from, and one of your earliest memories of your family from, in a sense, the place that you came from as a family that came to the UK just before you were born? So I grew up in Reading, which was known as Mini Barbados because there were so many people from Barbados that sort of descended and landed in Reading when they came to the UK. And I'm a child of the 70s and my household was full of lots of vibrant smells, colours, foods, of Barbados. So I think because so many people landed in Reading from Barbados, even, you know, the fishmongers and the butchers were able to sell the food that my mum and dad sort of grew up with. So there is a street in Reading known as Smelly Alley, um, <laughs> which was where the fishmongers were. And you could buy, at that time, you could buy flying fish and you could buy all the things that I was used to from Barbados. And so it was the music as well. So it was the music that was in the household. My dad was slightly obsessed with Boney M, um, but uh, he also used to love Calypso. So I used to hear the Calypso playing in the household as well, as well as country music. He really loved country music as well. But all of that, that I felt as though I was very connected with Barbados, even though I was born and bred here in the UK. There was that huge connection and influence 
with back home. And was there a, a reason you think that the community settled in Reading in particular? Look, there were, there were two big employers in Reading, uh, which so many of, you know, Barbadians who came to the UK sort of found work in. So the Royal Berkshire Hospital. So my mum was a nurse in the Royal Berkshire Hospital for over... 35 years and then the GPO which became British Telecom so my dad got an apprenticeship as an electrical engineer and so that those were the big employers so my godfather who sort of settled in Bracknell he was in Reading and moved to Bracknell he was also in BT as well so you know that was a big employer because they all got apprenticeships um, so I think that was part of the reason but you know you I, I think about my mum and dad's friends who used to come round the house when we were younger and they were all from Barbados or that connection with back home so I think with most immigrants into the UK you sort of make sure that you have that connection and people that can help you and know you because they're all trying to navigate how everything works here um, so that that was that was we saw people coming in and out of the household all the time. And when was the first time you remember going back to Barbados with your family? <sighs> Well, I don't remember it, but my mum took me when I was really little, so when I was two. And then um, we used to go back when we were younger, so I don't know, probably eight or nine, I think, was when I really remember being there. And it was just family. That's what I saw, because, you know, in Reading, my family was godfathers and friends, not immediate family. Going back to Barbados, that was family. So that was, you know, my... Grandmum was there, my granddad uh, from my dad's side, my grandmum, uh, my granddad from my mum's side. They were all in Barbados. Cousins were in Barbados. My aunts were in Barbados. My dad's family, his brothers, sort of also left Barbados and one had settled in Boston, one had settled in Toronto. But their father, my granddad Blackett, he was in Barbados. So it was, it was family and it was, you know, it, again, it was... Uh, going into my grandma's home, which, you know, we were in an office earlier, which was probably her entire house was the size of that one room, the office. But it was warmth and it was love. And it was, uh, you know, Karen and Sue, Danny's daughters from Reading, were back home. And that's what we felt and what we experienced. Amazing. Amazing. So let's now go through the, your, your sort of um, family years in Reading, your education your sort of social group, you know, what was it that you felt formed the foundation for the success that you went on to achieve? My work ethic comes from my mum and dad, that's for sure. So they absolutely knew that it was a privilege to be able to come here and work and that those opportunities did not necessarily exist back in Barbados at that time. So I don't remember my mum and dad ever being sick a day from work, ever. I really don't, because it was about if you can show up and you're well, you show up. You don't, you don't, you don't blag off work. You go to work. So my work ethic comes from them. But also, I think what they wanted for both myself and my sister, which they didn't have, was that education. So that that couldn't be taken away from us. They really believed in the power of education and about that's something that no one can take from you. And, I, you know, this, uh, the story that I mentioned before is I remember doing my mock O-levels. I'm that old, it wasn't GCSE. So my mock O-levels. And, you know, and I remember my dad loved chemistry when he was at school. 
but he didn't have the opportunity to study chemistry. What's he gonna do with chemistry in Barbados in the 60s? But that's what his passion was, and he really wanted to be a chemist. And I think he tried to live that through myself and my sister. So I remember coming home from school with my mock O-level result in chemistry being a C. I never heard the last of it. I really didn't. So it was a household where education was the power to be able to have choice. And that was really important for both of them. And we went to normal state school, but it was about really working hard because that enables you to have choice. And both your parents worked. Mm -hmm. So in, in many senses, by comparison to many families, that probably set some Absolutely. expectations for you about yeah. how families operate and how they share yeah. the workload. And I think you, you talked about your your father, in a way, being an early feminist. He absolutely was, because there was role reversal that happened in our household. So my mum worked nights at the weekends, which meant that my dad took care of us at the weekends. And again, part of the sort of tradition in our household was baking. There was lots of baking of, uh, you know, coconut turnovers and coconut bread and sort of foods which were familiar with home. And my dad was a really good baker. So my dad used to bake coconut bread. So he would cook at the weekends and he'd look after myself and my sister while my mum slept in the day. So that's what I saw. I didn't see gender stereotypes yeah. at all when I was growing up because my dad could do what my mum did and my dad would iron and he was cook. So I didn't see gender stereotypes. And I think, again, because my dad had two daughters, I think he was quite concerned about how we would fare in a country that he didn't quite know how to navigate yet, worried about us being black and female. And he used to say, you have to try twice as hard just to get a foot in the door. And so my dad really taught us how to do things that he wanted to make sure we didn't have to rely on anyone. So I was saying earlier, you know, I'm quite handy with DIY. I've got my dad's toolbox. Uh, my, my dad's now uh, deceased, but I've got his toolbox. So I'm quite handy you know, being able to tinker and change a radiator or look at a boiler. And or you can't say some... that for many CEOs, I can <laughs> tell you. Or, you know, do the decorating. So I, because he taught myself and my sister to be quite self-sufficient and independent. Self-sufficient, but I'm getting a strong sense of resilience as well. Absolutely. So yeah. if you, if we now sort of fast forward, obviously you uh, went to university, you graduated and you entered into the workplace. Obviously we're, we're looking now from the perspective of a senior figure in our industry who uh, plays a very prominent role in, in public life. Th there must have been a route going back to that resilience mm. that you took into your adult life. Mm. What do you think, were there, were there some pivotal moments that you could share with people here that you felt where you realised how powerful that resilience was in you? Look, I, I think, again, I inherit that from my mum and dad. So. My mum being a nurse in the 60s and 70s in Britain, having to care for patients that didn't want a black person looking after them. You know, that's her job. She's trying to look after somebody else. And in those days, you know, there wasn't the same level of equipment that you have now to help change beds and move people around. So I can imagine what she faced uh, working in the hospital with some people that didn't want a nurse who was black looking after them. 
and the NHS is run by, as far as I'm concerned, run by immigrants that literally keep it going. And my dad, when he first came over, before he became an apprentice, he was a bus conductor for a year on the buses in London. And again, I can imagine what he faced in terms of some of the resistance to his presence and his cousin, Shirley. Um, they sort of worked on the buses together and came here together. And again, if I think of my journey, one of the things which I'm really focused on, so I'm Chancellor of that university that I graduated from, so I'm Chancellor of the University of Portsmouth, and I'm very focused on teaching the kids that come out of university about the importance of resilience because things will go wrong and you will face challenges which no amount of studying will prepare you for. And it's those sort of real life skills which I think is so important. So if I think of my own journey, I was often one of a few women in a room, in a, in a meeting room. I'd definitely be the only black face in a meeting room. And I grew up wanting to get into advertising. I didn't know really what it was, but I remember growing up and seeing the ads on TV and being as impressed and entertained by the ads as I was as the programmes and just wanting to get into that world and didn't know how you got into it. And when I got in, if I think about what the talent looked like in terms of who was running all the major media agencies and ad agencies at the time, it was all men. There was one woman, which was Christine Walker, and there was nobody that wasn't white running an agency. And that's difficult because whether we like it or not, you know, that isn't particularly welcoming for somebody from my background. You do think, are you going to be able to succeed? Are you going to be able to have a career when you can't see anyone that looks like you? Yet my dad had taught me to make sure that we celebrate difference. Both my mum and dad had sort of said, get comfortable being memorable because you're going to be one of few in a room. And that was always in the back of my head. So you go into meetings, you're the, you know, one of a few women in the room, the only black face in the room. You have to get over that. You really do. And you have to be able, and it's not like finding your voice. I always, I always had a voice. It's being able to use it and be comfortable using it and making sure that people would listen to your viewpoint and your opinions. And not everybody's comfortable with celebrating difference. Not everybody's comfortable with having that diversity of thought in the room. And I have had, you know, on occasions when you speak to people on the phone and they're not aware of you when you're in, your, you know, when you're first in the industry and you turn up and you meet them in a meeting room, you can see the visible shock on their face when they realise that you were black and they tried to mask it. I've always preferred if somebody didn't like me because of my race and gender, that it's to my face, because at least I know what I'm dealing with. What's more difficult is when you hear about things behind your back and things based on your race or gender. That's where it's really difficult. And that's, that's hard to deal with because somebody, for whatever reason, does not like you, not because of your talent and what you've suggested, but because of your race or because of your gender. And you just need to be able to put that to one side. They're the ones that are missing out. And actually, that diversity of thought, that viewpoint in our industry is so important for creativity. It's so important in terms of how you can unlock growth. Um, and if you think about the UK, and it is a beautiful fruit salad of people, you know, my role is to help 
grow my clients' business and grow their brands, and that's through creating content in whatever form that is that reflects a consumer story. And that means that you have to have empathy with different consumers in modern Britain, which means that you do need people from loads of different backgrounds. And it's the polar opposite to what the industry was like in the early 90s when I started. It's changing, it's not changing quickly enough. And that's why I do so much and I'm so vocal about it. Because I love my industry and I want it to succeed. I want my clients' businesses to grow. But that means that we have to reflect all forms of consumer stories in the content that we create. Just going back to um, the influence that your family had on you, it has been said that in previous decades there was greater levels of social mobility um, across the whole of society, mm. including in the area of um, people's, people's backgrounds and origins. But could you imagine a young woman in, with your background starting out today having a similar level of success to you? Do you think that's more or less possible now? If I think about the advertising industry in the UK, uh, I think the national average in the UK is one in 14 people have been privately school educated. In the ad industry in the UK, from the senior leadership, it's one in three. So I, I think as an industry, we are getting much better at making sure that we don't keep fishing the same ponds, that we are looking at people from all backgrounds coming into the industry, but change is slow. I would hope that um, more people that have come through from different backgrounds who have managed to get to leadership positions, that role models for the people coming through, so it is possible. So the situation that I had when I entered the industry in the 90s, that won't be the same for somebody entering the industry now, because there is more diversity when it comes to our leadership of the industry. Um, and again, I think as an industry, we are doing more to make sure that we have different routes in. Because our industry was terrible at just hiring graduates and graduates from only certain universities. And that's one of the reasons I set up you know, a government-backed apprenticeship programme, because I wanted to explore how we got more talent into our business. And not everyone can afford to go to university. Sometimes that's a choice as well in terms of people just not wanting to continue to go to university. But if we were only recruiting grads and grads from just a handful of universities, for me, that's a talent drought. So I'm hoping that now our industry can see the benefits of all backgrounds coming in and how that helps with creativity. And that's a core strategy for WPP, literally making sure that we have that diversity of thought to help grow clients' business. And if there are one or two people or moments in your journey to get where you are today of people who've sort of guided or supported or made a pivotal difference that you could share with the audience, what, what, would, what would those moments Look, be? There, there was, I remember so well, um, and I do talk about this, that when I was probably about 13, 14 years ago in my career that I was a business director and I would be the person that would try and pitch for new business to come into the agency. And if we won it, I'd be the person that would run the account. And I remember we were pitching for a particular brand and we didn't win it. And um, this links back to, I prefer feedback to my face so that I know what I'm dealing with. And um, it's a small industry and I knew the winning agency and I knew 
the guy that was going to be my equivalent at the winning agency. And they did what I did, and they took the client out for dinner. They do exactly what I would do, took the client out to dinner to use it as an opportunity to get some competitive insight in terms of what all the other agencies did when they were pitching. And the two guys uh, sort of said, look, and the agency that I was at at the time, they said, oh, what are they like? And they said, oh, they were really good. Actually, they were pretty good. But there's no way we would have had a female business director, let alone a black one. And that has got nothing to it's do with the work. It's only 13 years ago. Yeah, that's got nothing to do with the work. That's about me, and that's personal. And I was devastated. I was really hurt, and I felt really guilty because I felt I'd lost the agency a piece of business, and I'd lost the agency revenue. And one of the people that really helped me with that situation is somebody who is still a dear friend and a cheerleader, who's Sue Uniman, who is the Chief Transformation Officer for Mediacom. And she was brilliant at helping me see that that was their problem and not my problem. Mm. And, but you feel terrible and then you feel really hurt. And it was Sue and her partner, Mark, that basically said, you've got to let it go. You can't hold on to that anger because you're the only person that's going to get hurt. So Sue has been brilliant for me. She's always been fantastic at guiding me. My immediate boss then at the time, um, Nick Lawson, um, I don't think he even recognised that I was female or black. I really don't. He just saw somebody that wanted to win. And he spotted something in me. And he would always and still does in rooms that I am not in or rooms that I did not have access to, he would champion me because he could see talent. And it didn't matter what form that talent came in, he could see what I could do. So he's been pivotal to me in my career. Even, you know, my current role at WPP, he was one of the people that was vocal and talked about, well, this is what she did at Mediacom. If you employ her in this role, this is what you're gonna get. So he's been brilliant for me. And then I've had a life coach for over 15 years. Um, he works with the agency um, in terms of Mediacom. He's working more across WPP. Uh, a guy called Adrian Green from a company called Pressure Point. And he's been brilliant for me personally as well as professionally. Um, so he's been fantastic at helping me with self-belief and self-confidence. And if there's a slide of industry leaders, you should be on that slide. You can do it. You could be there. Why wouldn't you be there? So he's been brilliant at helping me with that self-confidence and self-belief. Well, thank you for sharing that with us, Karen. And just to now widen it out beyond your business career into your career in public life, because you're now involved in some very high profile and important initiatives for the UK. Mm -hmm. Could you share with the audience, in a sense, what strengths it gives you as mm -hmm. someone from an immigrant background operating on a national stage? Because that's an extraordinary uh, voice that you, you have to, mm -hmm. to influence um, things that are going on at a national level. So take us through the moment where that happened to you. How did you feel and how did you then feel you found your voice on that at that level? Look, the, I, I sit as a non-exec director for Creative England and the CEO of Creative England, Caroline, and, and the mission of Creative England. I think the reason why I joined that board is because it speaks volumes about what, what is my purpose uh, and what... I think I can help with. And so she talks a lot about how talent is everywhere, but opportunity is not. And I genuinely believe that. I really do believe that there is so much talent out there, 
but not everybody has the right people in their lives or the right opportunity for that talent to fulfill itself. So, you know, it didn't matter what level I was in the industry or beyond, I would always be trying to do something to try and uncover talent, because I know I win. I win because I get ideas, because I find that I'm better when I'm surrounded by people different to me, and it energises me and it makes me up my game, and the company wins as well. But you can take that on a UK stage, on a national stage as well, and I genuinely believe that if all of the talent in the UK had that opportunity to be able to find their way, what an amazing, amazing future we have as, as the UK. But there are barriers in place and there's obstacles in place and it's about trying to remove some of those so that people get the chance to rise and shine. So I think some of you know, the stuff outside of the industry started when I topped the power list. And I, you know, I went on the Today programme and I spoke about, you know, running an agency at that time, which was about 1,500 people, looking after clients from all walks of life, but never having been approached for any form of remit outside of my day job. So, you know, whether that was a non-executive position, never been approached. And I think that opened, you know, conversations because it's, well, why is that? Why is that the case? Because clearly she knows what she's doing. Clearly she's a business person that can generate revenue, generate profit, knows how to lead. How many more people like that are there? And so that's where conversations and me doing more with government. Um, it's because I, I do believe if you can make change, try and do it at scale. Try and do it on the widest and the biggest canvas that you have. And I love working with the UK government to try and help guide them to try and help course correct, to try and make sure that we are casting the net as far as possible to level the playing field. And whether that's with the Department of International Trade and Foreign Direct Investment and Export, whether that's with you know, the apprenticeships and what we do with apprenticeships in the UK, or whether that's, you know, I'm a non-exec for the Cabinet Office and really looking at making sure that things which are really important to me are on the radar and can help with uncovering talent. And that's part of the race equality champion role for business which the previous Prime Minister gave me is trying to make sure that I work with business in the community, all the reports like the McGregor Smith report that shows how we could unlock growth to the UK. 1.3% of GDP we could add if you had the black, Asian and minority ethnic audience in the UK having the same employment opportunities as the white audience in the UK. I think we could do with that now. So that's where that conversation started. And presumably, I mean, it puts you into a very interesting position with regard to continuing immigration into the UK in certain areas where there are skills gaps. You talked about the National Health Service. Mm. Um, how does that conversation run in the context of what's happened politically in the last few years? <laughs> so, look, uh, as far as I'm concerned, Britain is an amazing fruit salad of people. And myself and yourself, you know, our origins in terms of our family history weren't from here, people immigrated here. And I think when you look at any organisation somewhere in the UK, there's a story which is a bunch of people that came to the UK that weren't originally born here that have helped grow it, help make it successful, help keep it running. And I think it's my role is to remind people in government of that story. And have you had a t any tough moments? in rooms where you've been reminded of some of those other 
attitudes that you've overcome in, in the heart of government? Or do you, do, is everyone quite polite? Uh, there have been some challenging moments. And I feel it is my duty to put a point of view across, an alternative point of view across. And, you know, not with any of the current ministers, with some previous ministers, there have been some challenging moments. And look, whatever your political views, wherever, whatever you voted in terms of remain or leave, it is trying to make sure that we recognise that the UK is a beautiful fruit salad of people. And whether you believe that migration is what's causing all the ills in the UK, actually putting the counter argument to that, to go back to, well, actually the NHS is run by immigrants and it's literally, that's what keeps it going. And that's why I will always try and protect the NHS because it is a brilliant service and a brilliant organisation which we should cherish and look after in the UK. And that's what I try and do in my role. It's reminding people of those sort of facts. So I think facts and stats always speak for themselves rather than subjective viewpoints. Well said. There's a lot of subjective viewpoints. <laughs> Forgive me, but I must ask a Meghan Markle story. I think by common consent, the wedding was an extraordinary cultural moment for this country. It did mm. seem to, a bit like London 2012, like there's change and there's everyone embracing a change in an extraordinary way. But rather like London 2012, we're, we're, we've moved on from that and the mm. atmosphere feels very different. Uh, we've both heard the Prince speak and passionately about the change that he's, he's looking to promote. So if you were to able to, for the audience to summarise sort of what the core objectives of the new foundation Well, the is. foundation's in its infancy at the moment, so I wouldn't be able to tell you that just yet because um, we are literally working out the strategy. It's in its infancy, and when we are ready to sort of announce what the core purpose and the mission is, I'm sure the Duke and Duchess would do that themselves. I can talk about you know, how I find them and work with them, and they are both incredibly passionate, incredibly good people. They really want to use their positions to make a difference to people that don't have the opportunities that they have had, and they genuinely mean it. So it's not them trying to come across as them knowing better than anyone else. It's genuinely trying to use their privilege and their position to help others and level the playing field. And that's the reason why I got involved. And they are both incredibly generous and good people. Wonderful, right. That's a great moment to pause and to invite questions from the floor. I think we have a hand up already. From your position as a leading person in your industry, I just wondered how long does a migratory pattern last for? You know, what are the cycles of migration that then impact on the way we can see ourselves as a nation? Look, that's such a good question, a very deep question as well. And look, to be able to say what the patterns and how long they last for, I couldn't tell you that. I really couldn't. What I think is, and I, and I talk about a fruit salad for the UK a lot, because, rather than a melting pot or a soup because what I do see is the influence of different people coming to the UK and the influence that that has on culture and it now as well with so many mixed families as well from different backgrounds what influence that's having on our culture and going forward for me a big community is the mixed community that exists in the UK and people from different backgrounds and what influence that has because again, I think, if I think about some of the stats, and I did say stats and facts are your friends, 
London, the 40% of the population in the UK comes from a black, Asian or minority ethnic background. The rest of the UK will be as diverse, ethnically diverse as London is by 2043. And I think that's a really interesting stat in terms of what and how we describe the UK going forward. Because we are a wealth of people and a wealth of nations and we are a fruit salad of people as well. But how long those patterns last, I couldn't tell you. I can sort of tell you the stats of where we are now and where, you know, the predictions in terms of where some of our other cities will be as diverse as London is. And it's not that far away. It really isn't. There's lots of schemes around diversity to get young people in the door, but how to keep people to feel included and to get them to stay and see a trajectory, not just at entry level, but at kind of mid and senior level is a thing that comes up for us all the time. People go to HR and they say they don't fit in and unless HR or someone in the organisation is able to fight that corner, then quite often we lose those young people. So I'm just wondering what you think about culture and how that can start to change. So look, I, I think, and what I talk about a lot is diversity, inclusion and belonging because that's the core thing. And again, stats and facts are your friends. So I talk about diversity as lots of people with different backgrounds in a room. Inclusion is some of those people with different backgrounds have a seat at the table, but belonging is when your voice is actually heard. And what's really important is having a root and branch approach to culture and running. Yet there might be lots of diversity schemes to get people in, but actually retention is just as important. So. I can talk about what we're doing at, at WPP and again it does take somebody that's experienced it to make sure that you have the programs in place to retain people and keep people. So we have a program which uh, started at Ogilvy but is now run across WPP in the UK called Roots uh, because everybody's got roots and it doesn't matter where it is and we've all got different roots and that program is about absolutely about pipeline talent and pipeline pipeline talent coming in, but it's also the programs being put in place to keep that talent and making sure that talent's connected to senior leadership. But it's also about that talent then being able to affect the work, because that's the point about it being able to affect the work. So one of the things which we have launched at WPP, and it is just launched, and well, there's 14,000 people at WPP in the UK, and we are trialling it with 2,000, so it's quite a big trial, is a mentoring app called YourBridge, where we are partnering some of our talent and specifically looking at some of our ethnic talent, being partnered with senior leadership cross-agency. So it's not necessarily within one operating brand, but it's cross-agency. And I'm doing that not just to fix the people that are the young talent, but actually part of it's about reverse mentoring as well. So those stories which are really important about, I need time to pray, or actually, I don't want to go to the pub for drinks because we've won this pitch. It's that opportunity to have those conversations. Uh, again, so that's one of the things that we're doing, but then as Roots, we hold events across the whole of WPP. One that we did, not the last one, but the one before was on about covering. And it was about, there's a brilliant study from Deloitte University from 2013 that talks about how people hide something about themselves in order to fit in with the mainstream at work and progress. And 61% of people cover. That increases to 66% if you're a woman, 78% if you're black, 83% if you're gay. And we had an event for Roots at WPP where we got four speakers, well-known prominent speakers to speak about their own 
versions of covering. So we had June Sarpong, we had Baroness Sandy Verma, we had Necker, who was our first black female tech NED, uh, and we had Sanjay, who's ex-EY, uh, partner at EY, and they all talked about their own different versions of, of covering. And then we did some speed mentoring around the tables. And the core thing for me is not just inviting our uh, ethnic minority audience or people from a lower social grade background to that, it was actually inviting our UK leaders so that they could hear the stories. And our UK leaders opened up and they talked about their own journeys of covering. And it's having those programmes in place about belonging, not just bringing people in, I think which will make a difference. But it does take, I, I genuinely agree, it does take leadership that understands why that's important. And normally that's because they've experienced themselves. And that's not about being black or being a woman. It could be you know, social mobility, it could be mental health, whatever it is, you've experienced it yourself and being able to keep that talent in the organisation and recognising retention is just as important as recruitment. It's incredible how strategic it's clear that you're having to be to mm. kind of affect those changes within the organisation and there's a young man with his hand up, no? Would you like to ask a question? Would you like to introduce yourself? What's your greatest inspiration and why? Uh, this is my son that is asking me <laughs> this question. We should give a round of applause for the question. It takes a lot of courage to ask it a question. Yeah. So, other than my son, <laughs> um, I, I would have to say, look, my mum and dad, and I know that that sounds cliched, but what they managed to do, so your granddad, who you didn't meet, unfortunately, because he passed away, but grandma, them coming to this country as 19-year-olds, not knowing anybody here, and managing to work incredibly hard and build a life for myself and Auntie Sue, though they have been a huge inspiration on me because they were very normal, working class, and managed to create a situation where myself and my sister, Auntie Sue, could perform and could find a place. So those two really are my greatest inspiration. Thank you for the question. Brilliant question. <laughs> I just wanted to check with you whether or not there's anything being done about colorism. We've had racism, we've had the diversity word, and now colorism seems to be the next thing, and I just wanted to know. And what, what, do, you, what do you mean by colorism? So by colorism, I mean that in the ads that I'm super happy to, to have seen the John Lewis ad, I think it was a couple of years ago, where there was a little black girl jumping on the trampoline with her dog. And then what we've seen since then has been um, representations of very light-skinned people throughout and um, light-skinned people who have got very curly hair. I'm just wondering what advertising agencies are doing to push the next barrier, which would be for me to see people who are like my niece, who are dark-skinned, and see them on TV. Look, I, th I think part of that is you can tell when it's painting by numbers. You can tell when somebody's doing a tick box exercise just to try and tick the diversity box, and it's what they perceive as an acceptable face of non-white in a piece of content. And it goes back to making sure that the best advertising is when a consumer story is told in a brand story. That's the best advertising and about having the unique insights that make it real. So I think, I think it's really obvious when you can see inauthentic advertising where somebody's doing a tick box. I also think it's really important and something that I 
encourage my clients to work with and people like David is that you work with those companies that can really help you and understand and can course correct when you're doing things which aren't necessarily authentic. So I mentor a brilliant woman called Selma Nichols who set up a company called Looks Like Me and she essentially is a talent agency and she does lots of casting with big brands now and she set up that company because her then three-year-old daughter was flicking through a magazine and said, why can't I see anyone that looks like me? And she set her, she jacked in her job and set up this brilliant casting and talent company. And she's working with brands like Tesco, Sainsbury's, Lego. She's working with loads now. And we had her speaking at one of our Roots events, actually, uh, recently for Black History Month. And she talked about how she was on the set of a particular brand and they were creating the TV ad. And one of the stylists wanted the little girl to have her hair all messed up. And uh, she was waking up and she was going to have her hair all messed up uh, and she had Afro hair. And Selma went, no, that's not right. If you have any understanding of a black audience, we literally have our hair tied down <laughs> at night and we would, that is not acceptable. You would never wake up with bedhead. Bedhead does not exist in our community because if you've got natural Afro hair, you're wearing some form of bonnet or cap on it. It doesn't exist. So I, I, I genuinely believe it's having people like Selma and working with people like Selma that will make sure that we are being authentic in our stories. And also, consumers vote with their feet. They can tell when something's not authentic. They can absolutely tell. So, you know, creating a Benetton ad where it's a cast of everybody from all different nations, you can tell because it doesn't link in with any form of true consumer story or human truth and I think you can tell so I think that has an effect in terms of people buying the product or buying the particular brand so I always say if you're going to cast somebody in an ad you either cast it because it's a natural thing to do not because you're trying to cast and say that you've ticked a, t a certain box and if they are a lead part of that particular ad or piece of content what's their story that you're reflecting in that particular ad or piece of content you've talked brilliantly about um, inclusion and then getting to belonging in a sort of business um, world. And I wondered what your thoughts were on, on a kind of national level and what got us to Brexit. What led us to that in terms of both maybe immigrant communities and people reacting to that? And could there have been a different sort of government policy? I suppose I'm asking about multiculturalism, where you stand on it, really. So I, I have to be slightly careful because I'm a non-exec for the Cabinet Office and we in, are in Perda, so I'm not meant to give my own political viewpoints. But what I will say and what I will comment on is that I, I feel I have a huge responsibility in my industry because I do have the ability to make people feel as though they belong. When we create pieces of content where people can see their story in the piece of content that we've created, it, it immediately connects you. I think there are some issues in terms of us in a London bubble and thinking that the rest of the UK is like London and everybody thinks like London thinks. And if we think about, you know, the ethnicity in London, it is commonplace and natural for us to see lots of people from different backgrounds walking around London. That's normal and natural. That's not the case for all of the UK. 
when we are going through a situation which is economically different, and this is not new, the new people are the ones that get blamed. Whether or not they've got anything to do with the economic situation we're in, you immediately turn and blame the new mob that we're in. So at one point, you know, that was the West Indians. At one point, it was the Irish. At one point, you just, that's the natural human thing to do, to blame the new people that are in. And I think in London, we didn't spot the difficulties that were happening around the rest of the UK, and there was too much of a London lens. And I do think that, you know, the narrative about migration being a cause for some economic issues that are happening. And I remember having a conversation with one MP about how people couldn't get their kids into schools and couldn't get to be seen by their GP because of migration. And to me, it, migration's got nothing to do with it. That's about us not having the right education system and us not looking after the NHS. Migration's got nothing to do with it. So. I do think part of it's about a London lens on things and us being in a bubble and not recognising how the rest of the UK was feeling. And I do think it's about a pattern of investment which we've made the decision to do, which has not supported some of the services that we take for granted. And in tough economic times, we blame the new people. And that we keep repeating the same mistakes in history over and over again. So unfortunately, the situation that we're in is not a new one. I'm a recent graduate, I'm a young black disabled female and I kind of wanted to know what's being done to help graduates from underrepresented backgrounds get into advertising because I definitely feel like there's still a struggle because it's definitely still white male and dominated so I definitely wanted to know like what's being done to acknowledge like graduates from underrepresented groups that want to get into advertising but are still struggling due to competitive nature. So I, I can talk about what we're doing at WPP and I can talk about how I'm working with the industry to try and change that. So at WPP, it's about who we partner with to help and to make sure that we do outreach rather than just waiting for people to come to us. And I think that's a big focus. So uh, we work with organisations like Debut, which is a piece of tech, to make sure that we are giving our messages and going out to you. And specifically with Debut, you can cut the data to make sure that we are getting more diversity in terms of the people that we communicate with. We partner with organisations like Rare Recruitment, who specifically specialise in people from a minority ethnic and social mobility, lower social mobility background. So we partner with those organisations to make sure that we are fishing in different pools and not constantly going back to the same pools. We have, again at WPP, looked at how we expand our university outreach. Uh, we have got an apprenticeship guide, which all of our operating companies now adhere to in terms of how to do the best apprenticeships and what to look out for and how to make sure that we recruit people and academic qualifications aren't necessarily a factor in that. It's about behaviours. So we've got an apprenticeship guide that helps with that. And again, from an industry level, the IPA, which is our sort of industry body, are doing great things to try and make sure that we have the programmes in place. Again, something that the IPA announced recently is uh, a list that they're doing, which is literally going to be ranking and awarding those agencies that have done the most in terms of changing the diversity of their agency and the programmes that they've put in place. 
But I also think, again, it's going back to the conversation about not so much of a focus just on London. So I am opening a WPP campus in Manchester, and part of what we're doing in Manchester is working with the local community to try and attract people into our organisation, but we do that by going out first. So I do think outreach is incredibly important. So there are programmes in place, but I'm aware it's still incredibly difficult. But it's, uh, I would sort of look at some of those organisations I mentioned that we partner with and sort of get in contact with them. Just thinking about the future and what you might go on to do, do you feel maybe that you have a responsibility perhaps to enter public life in a more official capacity? I'm thinking... I am not being an MP. You're not, okay. <laughs> no. I, I like being able to have one foot in that camp so that I can advise and help, but also a foot in the business camp as well. So I will not become an MP. I think my son will be very glad that I don't become an MP as well. So I think I can help, and I can actually help more being in the private sector and running a business because I can talk real-world experience. And I think uh, if I went into public life full time, sometimes that real world experience becomes a bit too distant. Well, Karen, whatever you choose to do next, I'm sure it will be adding to this incredible um, record you have of contributing to the business that we uh, operate in, but also to public life in this country. But as of this evening, I think most powerfully speaking as an authentic leader that connects with your own story so uh, vividly and so naturally and has left us with, I think, a really positive Im impression in terms of what's possible despite the complicated mm. times in which we, we operate. So please join me in thanking Karen Black at OBE. I'm George Alagaya, and you've been listening to Migrants Mean Business, a new podcast series from the Migration Museum in association with Allianz Global Investors. Subscribe to Migrants Mean Business wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss out. You can find out more about future episodes and give us your comments and feedback by visiting migrationmuseum.org or getting in touch with us on social media. We're at Migration UK on Twitter and Migration Museum UK on Facebook and Instagram. Migrants Mean Business was produced and edited by David Craigie, who also made the theme music. Thank you to Allianz Global Investors for sponsoring the series. Thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>